My name is Cassidy, and I work at CFUV. I'm the Indigenous Programming Coordinator. One autumn afternoon, Jay Simpson led our fifth Indigenous Media Workshop. Jay Simpson is an award-winning OG Cree and Soto writer, activist, and advocate. They are published in several magazines, including Poetry is Dead, This Magazine, Prism International, Sad Magazine, Briar Patch, Guts Magazine, Subterranean, Grain, and Room. Their work is featured in two anthologies, Hustling Verse and Love at the End. Their first poetry collection, It Was Never Gonna Be Okay, was shortlisted for the 2021 Relit Award and is a 2021 Dane Ogilvie Prize finalist, while also winning the 2021 Indigenous Voices Award for published poetry in English. In the following workshop, Jay talks about their journey with writing, how they bring Indigenous storytelling traditions into their practices, and how they bring their lived experiences onto the page. Please enjoy. really huge fan of oral storytelling so the presentation isn't going to have a slideshow or anything like that um mostly because I am burnt out from making slideshows and also using Canva so I'm going to take take some time away from that um my colonial name is Jay Simpson I uh, was born on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, which I'm currently um, zooming in today from. But my uh, people and my both my parents are from Sapatwayak Cree Nation, um, which is in Manitoba. Um, Ancestrally, I have a lot of connections to Kisakus, which is in Saskatchewan, and also all around the Manitoba area of the just the middle. Um, a lot of folks uh, forget the lengths of territory, so they 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 don't realize how much of a difference the south of Manitoba is from the middle of Manitoba to the north of Manitoba. Um, but my people are specifically from uh, the swamplands. And for a while, historically, we were called Swampy Cree, and then it changed to Oji Cree, and my lineage is also Soto. Um, I bring this up one in, in order to locate myself and where I come from very specifically as an indigenous person, but also as, uh, as a former youth in care who, uh, who often experiences a forced narrative of erasure. Um, when folks hear I'm from CARE, they automatically assume I am a reconnecting Indigenous person and that uh, at one point I may not have known I was Indigenous. I've been Indigenous and I've known I've been Indigenous from the front. My mother um, spoke Cree, she spoke our uh, native language and she was teaching me when I was um, taken out of care also. So to locate myself as someone who has been aware and participating in my own culture. 
Um, so I personally do not use the language of reconnecting. Um, this goes into my storytelling because a lot of the, the ways I have presented my own stories have been through the art of entertainment and not uh, the not without the knowledge of traditional uh, oral storytelling originally. Um, I, from a young child, had wanted to be a writer. And I had a book that my social workers had given me. Uh, my social workers had given me this book to fill out. And it's, it's kind of like those scrapbooks that some folks get. I am age four, blah, 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 blah. This is my best friend, that sort of thing. But for the longest time I had written author or writer and I, I had no idea what that meant in the variety of homes I was in or the, the, the changing of the landscapes. Um, I was in care uh, in British Columbia and uh, oftentimes in Langley and Surrey. That was a lot of where I was from growing up. And I, I do have to say that the, the culture and the storytelling that is on the coast um, is fantastic. It's gorgeous. It's completely lush um, and captivating. And so I grew up surrounded with Indigenous folks, although not of my own. I grew up with a lot of other Indigenous folks. One of my foster homes was really close to um, the uh, one of the Kwantlen reserves. And so uh, the school bus would pick up the kids and also pick up me. So I grew up on one of the school buses that had all the res kids. And so childhood, a lot of folks saw that. They, they saw that, um, and they always assumed I had grown up on the res, but I hadn't, I grew up adjacent to it. But the invitation in the culture was apparent. And so I learned at a very young age, the importance of um, witnessing. And that is something that some folks do not fully comprehend at first. And so I was taught how to witness and how to watch and how to listen. And it sounds very, a lot of folks assume they know how to listen. A lot of folks assume they know how to watch. And there are different kinds of watching and different kinds of listening. And as a everyday society that has forgotten uh, the, the original caretakers and the natural law, we, we have developed a different kind of listening. And the listening I grew accustomed to as I grew older was the listening to respond. I had forgotten about the listening to witness. And as I began to develop my own voice as I was older, I recalled the ways in which I was taught how to witness and how much of an honor it is to be asked to be a direct witness of an event. And that affected the way I began to see my own writing, which is quite autobiographical. 
in, in my poetry and in my personal essays. But it also made me think about how we go about writing. Because as much as from time to time we think writing is a solitary event, it is not a singularity. It is a continuation of dialogue or communication with other folks. We're always talking to the spaces around us. We're always witnessing or taking in our surroundings. And a big part of this curiosity I had was inevitably um, suppressed in a way where there was a lot of barriers with writing. Um, I was journaling and writing poetry from a very young age. And I, although I thought it was great, I do have to say it was awful. Um, I still have some of my poetry from when I was a teenager and I, I keep it for the cringe is what I say. I keep it to humble me. I have to remain humble. I have to acknowledge my humble beginnings. Um, but it got me in trouble. I got in a lot of trouble for the things I wrote as a foster kid. And I eventually got expelled from one of the schools I was in from what I had written. And what I had written was a highly fantasized world where everyone was different and it had like a different country name and it was fully like a young adults like fantasy series, but the villain had like a, a person's name. They shared names is the only thing. And so it was that shared name part that got me in trouble. And I quickly realized that as a youth in care, my privacy would not be honored, even though it is a fundamental uh, right of a child. But I had stopped writing for a while. And during that time, I was very into the theatrics, the, the art of the theater. And I began to realize in which the ways different things melt and how they manifest in wholly new ways. I saw some of my friends who took creative writing classes also in visual arts. I saw them in chemistry. I saw them in psychology. Myself was uh, mostly in theater arts, but all my friends were creative writers. They would eventually convince me to go back into creative writing, but in it, I, I came across spoken art and spoken word and very specifically the art of performance and oral storytelling I came across in the theater and I would come across it by witnessing um Jillian Christmas Janet Rogers I, I began to really uh experience how there are different ways in which culture is alive and tradition kept. And it comes in new names and new ways of being. And very specifically how a spoken word as a liberation and a performance can change drastically how one uh, walks in the world. And so it was the first time that I was seeing folks 
tell their stories in such a way and to such an audience response. And so I, I saw Janet Rogers reading some poetry and it was the most fantastic thing I had seen. I had come across works by Valine Jules, Mitchell Ostucci. Um, I had even seen back in the day, uh, back in high school, Zacchaeus uh, Jackson Nice. Um, I had uh, one of the first slam scenes I had ever been to. I saw Taryn Kutneo perform. Um, and I saw indigenous folks telling their stories in such a captivating way where it wasn't entirely exhaustive. And I also saw so many fantastic Black poets tell such amazing stories that were very real, that were very um, grounded in lived experience, but also very responsible, where it was uh, a lot of, um, of these artists who taught me that when telling a story, you have to take care of the audience in a way. And that the audience can be a reader, it can be a partner, it can be the literal audience in front of you, but the person you're telling the story to, you have a responsibility for. And so that's one of the major things I really wanna talk about is the responsibility to the other person because as a writer, I don't just write into the void. I know there are gonna be hands picking it up and it's those hands that I wanna take care of. My first collection of poetry is in part a huge piece of me breaking a lot of silence about a lot of things that happened, but also it is about hope. There's a lot of hope in it. And so that instillment of hope and desire for tomorrow is how I intended to take care of the reader. I, the dedication is uh, very prominently displayed to all the queer indigenous foster kids out there. Because growing up, I thought I was singularity. I thought I was the only queer indigenous person. I was freaking out. I wasn't seeing other folks like myself. Um, I was being told that my queerness was a liability. I had foster parents telling me my indigeneity was awful and that I was going to grow up to be a terrible person. So I had all of these ways in which I was being told that my identity was monstrous and I thought I was alone. But as I grew up in age of care, I encountered more and more uh, queer indigenous foster kids. And I realized that we weren't alone and that we all had very similar experiences, but not a lot of folks were talking about it. And so I had wanted to talk about it. But that being said, the collection and that work will find its way into many hands. And I wanted to make sure that anyone who came across the, the work and the language had a way to come back. I didn't want to just bleed on stage, so to speak. That is something that uh, a lot of things that were talked about on, on the slam stage was you leave like your organs on stage. You like, you know, you show folks where the hurt is. 
but I wanted to make sure that there is a deep care um, in instilled in my work. And so when I write, I, I write what I need to write. I write the things that hurt, the thing that bruises, the thing that's funny because my humor is very dark and I find a lot of humor in some of my darkest places. But with that, I think, I think there's a lot of space to tell the honest story, but also there's no shame in saying, you know what, I'm gonna just tuck that away for now. I'm gonna keep that in a place maybe for later. And so my collection had a lot of poems that I actually took out. And I have them in a place that is safe for myself and I have them in a place that's safe for others. But my, my biggest want with it all was to make sure that I was available to talk about them also. If someone were to come up to me and say, hey, this poem, can I talk to you about it? I wanted that to be available because I can't just like write something, put it out there and then pretend that it doesn't exist or pretend that another person doesn't exist who's reading it. I can't do that. You know, I'm not Margaret Atwood. I, I don't have that capacity. Um, and I think I wanted it to be an availability. I wanted the language to be an availability. And so I've been pretty lucky where the intentionality has worked. I've had a lot of dialogue with folks who are Indigenous, who are queer, who are um, QT BIPOC, who, who are former youth in care, who are engaging in the work and they're seeing it and they're seeing it in a way that's safe for them. But also there's a sharing of language. There's a lot of things that they're like, I didn't even think about this. I didn't even know I could talk about it in this way. And I think that's a very beautiful thing with indigenous storytelling is we will manifest the ways we speak no matter what. I may not have the language of my ancestors or even my mother right now, but I can still dream and understand what is being said and what's being spoken and it coming forward. I really look to the works of Jessica Johns and Billy Ray Belfort, Joshua Whitehead, Brandy Bird, who decided just to write. And it's been very interesting seeing the change in the literary landscape where we weren't seeing a lot of indigenous writers and we weren't seeing a lot of indigenous storytellers. And part of that to me is a very clear case of classism, um, race, uh, institutional racism, lack of access due to education. And there was a lot of talk about it too. I had seen a lot of folks talk about how the jump from a slam stage to poetry, um, page poetry was not, not common. 
And it kind of frustrated me that there were folks essentially saying that they didn't take poetry from a spoken word artist seriously. But now we're seeing situations like I, my books won an award, Jillian Christmas's Gospel of Breaking won a $10,000 award. We're seeing, we're seeing artists who know how to tell stories in such gorgeous ways that it doesn't just fall on the page as ink and paper. It flows out and moves in a way that is remains true to its public presence and its hypnotism. And I think one of the things that is particularly interesting is spoken word and oral storytelling is far more accessible than a lot of philosophical, academically supported poetry, where the accessibility of this poetry is allowing more folks to engage in it and see themselves in poetry. And so we're seeing more indigenous writers, we're seeing more black writers, we're seeing more um, mixed race writers, we're seeing folks actually get in there and telling their stories. And I am seeing the ways in which the, the old institutions are falling. And so I'm here for it. I'm here for all of the folks. One of the biggest things no one told me about is submitting to magazines. I had one professor tell me to submit to magazines constantly, but it wasn't until I had moved to Vancouver and began to interact with more Camlet events because there were none in Camlets. I think that's a big thing with um, writing and literary access and telling stories is geographical access. When I had moved to Vancouver, there was just more events done by magazines. And so I began to submit, submit, submit. And I think I had submitted like 50 poems and none of them got accepted. And I got very, very, very sad. But I began, I just decided to submit more. And my first acceptance came in, the next day, a second acceptance, and then a third and a fourth. And it began to, to roll in and trickle in. And it was through the role of the editors who uh, some of them were queer, some of them were trans, some of them were indigenous and they understood what I was saying and they helped me get there. And so I've changed a bit of my storytelling to reintegrate witnessing as a form of lifting up other storytellers. There are so many stories outside of my own. And I am very comfortable in my own story. And I firmly believe that we shouldn't tell anyone other's story. So there's no reason for there to be singularities. And it is the institution's own racism and impl implementation of tokenization of one voice that has led us to try to compete for certain, uh, certain positions. But now that there is a change in, in our own voices and in our own confidence of ourselves, we are no longer submitting to that. I'm not seeing a lot of that in community. 
And I think the biggest thing that has helped me in my storytelling is establishing those mutual relationships built on care and refusing to submit. I, I got help in some of my career and I had Indigenous editors see what I was trying to say and help me get there. That is the role of editors. And that is the role of workshopping. And so I signed up for every workshop. I was in every meeting. I was going to all these events. I was asking these questions. I was, was I annoying? Absolutely. Was I pissing off my professors? 100%. I, I didn't want to just tell a story. I wanted to tell a good story. And so... I dove into it, but in this, I also saw selfishness in community. And that was something no one had talked to me about. And I got burned a couple times in community and that happens, there's going to be mess. But what it made me realize is that I wanted to focus on my craft, but I also wanted to focus on my well-being and having intentional, strong relationships. And so, that's what I did. I built kinship with Jessica Johns, with Emily Riddle, with Billy Ray Belcourt. I built these relationships, not because I wanted them to look at my work or be a part of my work, but because as queer indigenous folks in existence, I wanted there to be strength. And so there was a lot of things that came out of it. Indigenous Brilliance through Room Magazine is a uh, Indigenous collective that started as um, Canada's first all Indigenous reading series. And from it, we have a podcast, we have had an entire issue of um, Room Magazine publish Indigenous Brilliance. But it's, it's ideas like that and those collectives coming forward that are creating Indigenous content that is really, really, really good. Because for the longest time, I grew up under the shadow of TB tales and the, the ways in which I was told Indigenous poetry could or art could exist. Um, and I got really, really, really tired of the pan flute. If you ever, if you're ever seeing any indigenous thing on any media, like put stick it in the back of your head and 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 see if you can hear the pan flute. And it happens a lot. Um, and I only bring this up because Metis in Space, which is a podcast, like a sci-fi indigenous podcast, they talk about that. And so they go through all of these medias. But I'm going on a tangent there. I wanted to exist outside of the narrative of Indigenous art or what it's perceived to be. I also wanted it to be <clears throat> me and honest. And so there is a lot of work that has to be done and realization of ownership. Early on, I was writing my story, but I was also writing my sisters, my brothers, and that's not genuine. And also it's not fair. 
It's not fair to my sister. It's not fair to my brother. It's not fair because it is not the whole truth. It is only my perception of what they also experienced. And so I think the biggest things in which I want to say here is remaining true to your own voice while also taking care of the audience is is what is keeping this as a sustainable practice and keeping me motivated to keep on telling different stories and new stories because I am really interested and curious on the ideas of uh, the future. I think we have a very gorgeous future ahead of us as um, artists, writers, and storytellers. I think there is so much space and so much opportunities um, ahead of us that with that, there can be such empowerment. And so I'm very interested in that. And so my biggest focus has been on dreaming that into existence while also sitting down and listening. Yeah. Masicho for listening today. This recording is part of our Indigenous Media Workshop series, and it features Jay Simpson. You can find Jay Simpson's amazing collection of poetry, It Was Never Gonna Be Okay, at your local bookstore or wherever great books can be found. To find out more about our upcoming Indigenous Media Workshops and feature guests, please visit cfuv.ca for more information or send me an email at indigenousmedia at cfuv.ca. This episode was produced by CFUV with financial support from the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the only organization mandated to provide financial support for non-profit radio stations in Canada. CFUV is a non-profit radio station broadcasting from the University of Victoria campus on the beautiful, traditional, and unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Wasanich and Lekwungen peoples. Visit CFUVpodcasts.com or search for CFUV wherever you get good podcasts for more homegrown, cutting-edge content. Thank you.